Tonight's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by our friends at ZipRecruiter. We don't know what football is going to look like this fall. Things may be a little up in the air, but some things remain certain, like our presenting sponsor, ZipRecruiter's mission. Through all of this, all the stuff that's going on, they're still dedicated to helping people find jobs and help growing companies hire for their teams. If you're looking for a job, ZipRecruiter's app will send you up-to-date job openings so you can be one of the first to apply by connecting job seekers with employers. ZipRecruiter committed to keeping our workforce strong. ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. Go check that out. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com and The Ringer Podcast Network. On TheRinger.com right now, we are deep diving a year since Game of Thrones ended and a whole bunch of content. Jason Concepcion wrote a really good piece about um, what brands, uh, what his reign looks like right now. So you can check out all that at TheRinger.com. New podcast launching on The Ringer Podcast Network, May 20th, season one, boom bust. Tackling the trivia app HQ, which had a huge rise and a huge fall, and it all happened really fast. This is a new narrative pod series where we will be doing more than just HQ, but this is season one. You can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We also are announcing a new podcast really soon that we're going to be launching next week. Rumor has it Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay are going to be involved. Stay tuned for that. More details to come when I have them. Coming up, my first dead guest, The Undertaker. Yeah, The Undertaker. And this is an amazing podcast. Nephew Kyle said it was top five since he's been producing. At the tail end of it, we're going to play a 2006 Eddie Vedder in Chicago with Pearl Jam playing present tense. Uh, but then telling a little story about the Bulls beforehand. So that's going to be as a little cherry on the Sunday of a really awesome podcast. We're going to be putting that at the tail end. Thanks to our friends at Pearl Jam for giving us that. And now, speaking of Pearl Jam, here are our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, making history here. I've been doing podcasts for 13 years. I've never had a dead man on the podcast, but now here he is, The Undertaker. How are you? I'm doing good, and if you live to tell about it, you'll be doing even better, I guess. Right? <laughs> Have you ever done a podcast before? Uh, you know what? Just just since this doc has come out, but never. I, yeah, I've always uh, I've always passed. Um, I just you know the character always come first in my book. So there's a lot of things that I had to, I had to say no to, um, uh, just because I didn't feel like it worked, um, you know, for what I was trying to do on TV and, you know, it, for, for all those years, it just, you know, you can't see this part of me and then me go out and then do the other guy. Right. It'd be a connection. So, uh, yeah, only I've, I've probably done more media and more things in the last two weeks than I have in, in well, I wouldn't say my whole career, but it's probably close, yeah. Well, you have The Last Ride, which there's two episodes up right now on the WWE Network, and I had no idea this was happening. I had no idea it was going to be this uh, 
this honest and this behind the scenes? Cause as you just said, you've been meticulous about never showing that side. What, what made you decide? Cause this goes back basically to 2017. Right. What made you decide you wanted to start documenting this and kind of cross that, that fourth wall? Well, it started out with at, uh, at that WrestleMania in 17, you know, I thought that was it. And, um, because I had been so protective I just thought, I didn't know, we didn't start out with the idea of making a documentary. I just wanted that footage of those last few days around what I thought was going to be my last WrestleMania. Right. I didn't know what we were going to do with it, but I I wanted it. And I knew at some part, you know, at some point it would probably come in and we would do something. I had no idea it would be at the scale that it's turned out to be because obviously, uh, after that WrestleMania, then it just, it kind of continued on. And the next thing you know, we're three years down the road and we've got all this footage and, um, and yeah, that's kind of how it came about. It wasn't, it wasn't designed to be a docu-series. It was kind of just, I wanted to document those, those last few days of me being around the business. And, uh, it really, it really blew up into a a three-year project. Yeah. But you should have known as a wrestling guy, Wrestling and boxing, nobody ever officially retires. You think you that's think true. you're retiring, but you just never know. People come back all well, the time. You, that's what, <laughs> you know, in the, in the doc, you know, it's just like the old Godfather uh, quote, you know, every time yeah. I think I'm out, you know, I'm, <laughs> I get pulled right back in. So, no, you never say never. You never say never in this in this business. And, uh, you know, that's that is a parallel between boxing and, and, and wrestling is like you just never know. Well, I don't want to spoil part one too much because part one, I, I was not only riveted, like I, I was really into it. I, I thought it was excellent. Like, you know, as somebody well, who you. really cares about the form and, you know, a lot of the times when people do these, they become basically infomercials. I call them documercials. And this right. was way deeper than that. Way more honest. That One of the things I didn't realize was how disappointed you were with that WrestleMania match in 2017 and and you're going against Roman Reigns. It's this big moment for him, you know, and and the, the company had been building him, building him. And this was, you know, supposed to be the exclamation point for here he is. He's arrived. He is our new guy. And you felt like you let him down, which I, I never knew any of that story. Why did you feel like you let him down? Well, my, my hip was so bad going in, uh, into that match. Um, you know, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't perform at a level that I wanted to perform at. And then with the, the magnitude of trying to, you know, I was, I'm going to put Roman over and, you know, that was going to be a a big launching pad for him. So obviously I wanted to perform, you know, I wanted that to be like, okay, this is the, you know, this is the slingshot and I just didn't have it, you know? Did and, you know as it was going on? Oh, I knew it. Yeah. I knew yeah. it before it started. I, I knew it. Uh, I was going to be in trouble uh, at the Royal Rumble in, in January before that. You know, um, if you can go back and look at the footage, I mean, you can tell, like, I'm, I'm just not in, in, in the shape that I should be in. Um, you know, I couldn't train the way I wanted to train, but I'd already committed to doing it. And, um, so I'm 
guess I mean, you know, I'm kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And, you know, passing the torch is a really big thing in our industry. And he's, a, you know, he's a really good dude. He just, he deserved it. And I just wanted to be able to give the best to him that I could, knowing what that match was going to mean to his career. And then, you know, when I couldn't deliver for him, you know, yeah, that, that, that kind of stuff bothers me. And when you're leaving the ring after that, and in that, that, that match, famously, you, you left your stuff in the middle of the ring and you walked right. off, you did the, you held the fist up, but then you go backstage and you have all these different people greeting you, applauding, hugging you, saying good match. Are you reading their reactions to see how genuine it is and be like, oh man, I know this didn't go well. I can tell from the looks in their eyes. Yeah, I don't think it was so much as it was a good match. I think everyone kind of knew that that was the end. Yeah. And it was, just, I think it was kind of over the body of work and, and, and the appreciation. It definitely wasn't for that match. I mean, right. Uh, you know, that match fell, you know, anybody wants to be honest. I mean, you know, it fell way short of, of, of the expectations, but I think it was more so a respect thing for all the 27 years prior and, and everything more so, uh, you know, and then no one, you know, when it was grown men, grown, you know, tough guy men that, that were, you know, had tears in their eyes, you know, when yeah. I put the hat and the coat and everything down, you know, no one expected that. No one knew what was going to, you know, not, no one knew what was happening. So it was, it was so organic. And, uh, you know, I think it kind of really caught a lot of people off guard. And uh, I think the, the applause and, and, and the greetings and everything were more so for the body of ceremonial. Of, yeah. Yeah. In, in the match. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because in part two, you show the 2018 match against Cena. And you had had hip surgery at that point, but you're also in way better shape and, and you can see it in the match. Like it looks like you're 25 pounds lighter, obviously, cause you were able to work yeah. out, but yeah, you're moving around so much better. And, and at that point you, you go in, in part one, you talk about, you know, basically you're wrestling once a year right? and you have to spend three, four months getting ready for this one match. And then three, four months after just recovering from the match. Um, what, when you talk about like getting ready for the match, how do you get your body ready when your body just hasn't been taking those bumps and those hits and all that stuff just to take it for 25 minutes? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's tough, you know, and then it was, it was a lot easier. Obviously uh, you see in part two that I actually, you know, had a ring come down to here, down here to Texas which for the past, for the, you know, I would go to Orlando a little bit. Um, but I have to be judicious in how much, you know, how much trauma I take just because it, it set me back. It would set me back in, in my training. Yeah. You know, as crazy as all that sounds. And then what happens, like when you can't take bumps and you can't, you know, you can't put your body through that. Then it's then it's really tough on the backside of that match. Now you can get through the match, but man, I tell you what, that but your my body would like literally shut down after you know after a WrestleMania match, just just from the just from the trauma. That's the that's the best thing about being able to work you know all the time is that your body stays conditioned and for the for the trauma that it has to take, and then especially being WrestleMania. You know where everything's let, 
everything's let go. I mean, I mean, that's our biggest deal. So everybody, you know, they don't, they don't put any stops on anything. They just go. And, uh, you know, everybody wants to have that, you know, those big time moments. And, uh, so the body not being conditioned for that is, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty brutal. Um, that's why I was so disappointed, you know, because I, I had all that time in the ring. I was, you know, I was in the ring sparring and, and, and going over stuff every other day. And then, you know, we get to, I get to New Orleans and they go, oh, this match probably needs to go about five minutes. I'm like, you're <laughs> right. kidding me, right? Because I'm ready to go. I was ready to go for 45 minutes. That's, that's right. how I trained. And, and a 45 minute pace, because I was, I had, was so dead set. Like, I was so disappointed from the prior year that like, I, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tear this up and I am going to go at a pace probably faster than what people normally see me go at. I'm going to do things that I haven't done in a long time. And I, you know, I was so, I was so prepared and then, you know, it was five minutes and, um, you know, I say it, I say it in the dirt, you know, we sell, you know, we sell entertainment, we don't sell time. And it was, that was more of a kind of a selfish thing for me. Like I wanted to show like, you know, what you saw last year, is not where I'm at. And right. And, uh, so, well, it seems like, you know, football players talk about it the same way where they need to almost condition their bodies to the punishment. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have that two, you know, six to eight weeks, two months, whatever it is of the preseason, just to hit the shit out of each other. Right. Then when you get into a game, you're, you're, it's almost like your body can't handle it. it you, it's weird to think of the concept of, conditioning your body for punishment but i think wrestling and football are probably the two best examples of it right i, I think so and, and then you know even you know that's why you spar too when you when for boxers spar you know True. It's, you know it's it's also to toughen up their the skin on the, you know on their face so they don't get cut and, you right know, you know so you have to you, you just can't and especially as you get older you you have to you have to figure that in too so I, you know, I have to train 10 times as hard now for half the results. And, um, you know, I kind of think that's what happened, uh, in the, in the match with Lesnar at Mania when I got concussed so severely, uh, that year, you know, I just couldn't, I was like, I had to figure out, okay, am I going to be, am I going to be cardiovascular conditioned or am I going to be conditioned for trauma? You know, I had to pick one or the other cause I was just so beat up that I couldn't you know, I couldn't get in there and, and take a lot of bumps. And I was like, well, you know, it's one night I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be able to endure or whatever. And I think it kind of caught up with me that year. Right. Cause most guys aren't able to throw me around, you know, like Brock could, you know, he gave me all those German suplexes and, uh, you know, bumps that most people don't can't give me. So, you know, it was nothing that he did that was unsafe. I just, just I don't think my body was conditioned for the trauma. And he also know. seems like the the least fun person to get into the ring with, I would guess. You know what? I actually, I, you know, I actually enjoyed, you know, through my, you know, his first time there. And when he came back, I, I mean, you know, I mean, he's, it's, it's there, man. I mean, that's what I mean. Like, so to physically, so ridiculous, the, the burden of the, even just the German suplex is like. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine. Like he's doing like five, six in a row. You got to be like, feel like a ragdoll. Yeah. By the time you get the cobwebs shook out of your head, then there, there you go. <laughs> like, okay. All 
it's going to be one of those nights. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, it, that's the game, you know, it's not ballet and, and at, uh, you know, some nights, you know, you're the one that's giving them and some night you're the one getting it. So it all works out. And, uh, but well, uh, I, I didn't realize until I watched this show that you have no recollection of that match. Cause I, I would say that's the most famous match of this decade. It's certainly the most, one of the most surreal wrestling matches ever where, you know, you have this, you think you're 20 and 0 at that point, And it was yeah. just assumed you're never losing. Right. And the sound in the arena when it actually happened, I don't think that's ever been replicated in wrestling. Yeah, um, it was, I know it was from what I, I think from that, watching it back. I mean, it was, it was like, it was well, like yeah, well, all the air got taken out of the arena. Yeah. I think when Bruno San Martino finally lost in the mid seventies, when he'd had the title for like eight years, everyone says that it was the same kind of sound then where people were just like, they just couldn't believe it. And then they got pissed, Yeah, (laughs) but it was like 10 seconds of like, just complete disbelief. But, um, was that, I, I'd heard two different versions of this. Were, were you supposed to lose that match? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause yeah. I didn't know if they got audible because you were so compromised at some point no that they had to knew. like shift it. No one knew. I mean, I guess, well, they knew, but you know, they, they like, I, you know, Brock, I think got like, he got hyper nervous about it. You could tell, I mean, it, maybe for the casual fan, you couldn't tell, but I mean, if anybody that is, is in on our business or, or follows our business pretty intently you can you can tell that i'm really lethargic and 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 i'm moving kind of slow um i thought you got concussed watching it because you didn't seem right and yeah every single moment when even when you're trying to get up it just was so delayed and it was like this doesn't feel like a performance it feels like something's wrong yeah and it was and i and like i said you you know to answer you i my memory of that day stops at about three thirty in the afternoon. That's my last memory I have of that day. And my wife had come backstage, uh, as you know, she normally does before, you know, I really started getting ready to, um, you know, start going through my process. And, uh, you know, I told her, you know, what was going to happen and uh, <laughs> calmed her down. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that was it. And then, you know, like I said, my process of, of, of getting ready for a match is, you know, there's, there's a stretching and the, in the heat and the, seeing the doctors and everything else that I have to do, which I did all of it, but I couldn't, I don't remember doing any of it and I had no recollection of match. Um, you know, it was four o'clock in the morning before I knew what my name was. How long, how long after that match did you feel? Okay. How long did it take? It, it took, uh, so we, I got out of the hospital, uh, went back to the, to the hotel for a few hours. And then I got on my, on my bus and we came back to Texas and I basically stayed in, in my room in the dark for nearly two weeks. Wow. Yeah, it was. And I, I've been concussed before, uh, but never to that, never to that, that level. Um, I'd never had like the 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 lingering headache and the and the uh sensitivity to to light all that 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 had never happened at you know to that extreme before so it was uh yeah it was strange and then not being able to remember uh you know i've been you know i've been concussed like i said a few times and 
you know, you finish, been able to finish the match and, and then know exactly when it happened. And, but not that time. Yeah. And you don't even, you watch the match. You don't even know when it happened. Right. I can't, I, I, I've watched that match as closely. I mean, and picked it apart. I just can't tell, you know, I mean, cause there's, no, there's nothing that, that really said, you know, like, Oh, okay. Cause you know, you, sometimes you can tell by the way your head hits something or, uh, you know, you'll say, okay, there it is. But I mean, I've watched it back and I just cannot pinpoint where it happened. Uh, I guess I can pinpoint, I guess I can kind of get in the area because I can tell by the way, you know, my body language and, and my pacing and everything kind of stops, but there's nothing that, that says, okay, that should have caused a concussion. The irony is it's one of the most famous passing the torch matches. Cause that was the, I mean, Lesnar is one of the most important guys of, of the past decade. That was the match that cemented it. And it's not, not different than, you know, Hulk was the biggest star in the world when he wrestled Andre, but to right. pin Andre was, was such a big deal. It, it put him at a whole other level because nobody beat Andre. Right. And it was the same thing with you. And, and I really feel like, I don't even, I think those are probably the only two matches like that. I don't, can you think of another match like that where it was that much significance? Not, not really. Uh, you know, and I remember, uh, you know, I, I, I remember, I remember Hogan beating Andre and just like, I was, you know, you, you kind of, from, from where the industry was at the time, you, you, you know, you still think that's still, that's Andre, you know? Yeah. And, but you know, hope, you know, Hulk was getting that super mega push and was the, the, you know, the face of wrestling, but you still, you know, for guys that had followed Andre, he's like, still Andre the giant, who, you know, how are they going to do this? You know? And when it happened, you're like, wow. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's great. And it was the same thing, uh, you know, with, 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 uh, with Brock, you know, people were just like, you know, a lot of people were, a lot of people were, were upset about it and, um, you know, a lot of people felt like he didn't need it. It could have done, you know, it could have been somebody else. And, but yeah, the, business is business. You didn't even realize the streak was a thing with WrestleMania until what, like eight, nine, 10. I think it, I think I was, I think it was with, uh, going into to 10 or so. I think it was flair in Toronto. Um, cause at the end of that, you know, I hold up the fingers and, you know, I count them out, but before, you know, somebody, I think it was that year that someone said, you know, you're undefeated. Right. I was like, really? I, I, I had no clue. I mean, we were so just in the groove and 300 days a year. And you, you don't even think about it. you. Don't, at that time, you don't, you know, you don't think about your win loss record and all that. Right. And then it kind of, then it took on a life of its own. Like, okay, well we got, you know, that's just unheard of to be, you know, 10 and all at WrestleMania. And then it, I think it went to 21, went to 21 before Brock beat me. That's right. 21. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I remember it, when it hit double figures, just wondering, just as a wrestling fan, just being like, I wonder if they'll just like how long they'll keep this going. Because part of the problem with wrestling is, you know, it, when it gets into trouble, it's when they just kind of don't stick with something, Yeah, you know, and they get, they get hasty or they're like, Oh shit, we need something to happen. And, and then all of a sudden they've put eight, nine months into a storyline or eight, even eight, nine years. Yeah. And then they'll just get rid of it in a weekend. 
right. they never did that with the WrestleMania streak, which I always thought was impressive. Well, there, yeah, I mean, there were there were some. Uh, I, I guess there were some creative meetings that it it, it it came up about various different people beating the streak, and and I think it was one of those rare occasions where a lot of people kind of just like, man, it's, you can't do that. It's just not, you know, we right. have something here because, you know, there was the, whoever the main event was, and then there was whoever Taker was going to wrestle it, you know, who was going to try and get the streak that year. Right. So it's like double main event. It was, it was, it was, it was a double, it was a double main event. And, you know, fortunately a lot of guys, like if they didn't win, uh, you know, if they didn't win the, the chamber, which, the, the chamber match automatically guarantees you a title shot. You know, the consolation prize was not that bad, you know, right. you get to go against, you know, get, get taker and try and go after the streak. So what was the best was a, one in your opinion? What's the, what's, what was the peak? What was the peak WrestleMania match? I have my own personal pick, but I'm interested to see if it jives with yours. Uh, it would have, man, I tell you what, I, and I, and I talk about this, like, there's those four, the four matches, the two matches I had with Sean followed by the two with triple H. I, Cause that was just like, if you, if you look at it, it's one continual story. Yeah. I, you know, we, me and Sean, we had, uh, you know, kind of our, our heaven and hell match, which, you know, I'm, I've never been one to say, okay, that, you know, this was, a, this was a great match. That, that match was as damn near, <laughs> as good as it gets and i'll put yeah. it up against i'll put it up against about anything i mean it was just it, everything clicked and and the match was was just phenomenal i had i had such good chemistry with sean and then came back the following year because he, he was ready to retire so you know then you have that match which was a, i mean that was a ton of pressure because you know you got Shawn michaels last match it's <laughs> there's a little bit of pressure in that especially being at wrestlemania Right. So those two matches were were re really good, and then we got to follow that up with, okay, well, Shawn Michaels' best friend's going to step in, and you know he's going to try and take me out for what I did do. I mean, it was just I'm really really proud of those those four matches. Uh, but the first Shawn match was probably probably the best match I think I've ever had. Yeah, it's interesting. I would say the first Shawn match was probably a little bit better, but the second the second one was the more emotional one. Oh, yeah. That was like yeah. from if you if you're working in all the stuff that makes professional wrestling what it is, the second match is probably yeah probably and brings the most I elements did. to it. That's what I try to tell people all the time, and and I talk to you know I talk to young wrestlers. I what we do is is athletic storytelling, and that's that's the key to to getting people hooked, and 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 that's kind of the disconnect with, with our product now is everybody thinks it's all about the athleticism and the things that they do in the ring, but it's the storytelling that gets people hooked. And, right. you know, the, the, and these are really organic moments that happen. Like, you know, the, the handshake into the hug with Sean after, you know, after he had just lost in his you know career, he lost his career. And then at the end of the hell of the cell against triple H where Sean was the referee. When we went up to the top of the state, all three of us walked out of there together. That wasn't planned. That's all, that was all organic stuff. Yeah. You know, it was just like, you know what, this is probably going to be the last chance for this era to be, you know, doing it together. And 
it was it was just you know it was just something that that happened and you know i have a i have a a poster of that of the three of us standing up there um it, it's above the door to my gym here at the house and i see it all the time and i just you know i can't wow. help but look at it and feel proud that because like i said those were you know those four matches were just i thought in my opinion like they were storytelling at its best and um and it's hard to do in this day and age to take something for four years as as much content and as much exposure as we get to be able to do that. It's uh, I'm really proud of those. You know, you might have a different answer for this, but I thought Sean was the guy that meshed with you the best because you guys were so different and the mm -hmm. things you were good at, the things he were good at and he was good at. And, you know, the best quality he had was he's on the short list of being able to sell the other guy mm, and right. punishment. And you were on the short list of guys who just seemed the most physically imposing, who could dish out the most punishment. Um, and it just, I thought it was a perfect match. It was interesting to hear you in the, uh, in the documentary series in 2017 or 18, and you're talking about AJ Styles and you're saying, man, I'd love to work with that guy. It was kind right. of very Sean-esque, but then you finally end up at doing the WrestleMania match with him this year, and it was a little reminiscent of it, right? It was like almost like oh, having yeah. Sean back. Yeah, it really was. And 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 that I think that was... It, it was funny. It's funny how the cameras caught all this stuff. Once again, there was no plans for any kind of AJ Styles match or right. angle or anything. That was just the cameras catching me talking about whatever I was talking about. And he was on the monitor and that just came to like, man, I wish I'd, have, you know, cause at that point, even then I was like, man, I don't know if I had enough, I would, I didn't know if I had enough gas in the tank left to, to really make that match work. So I didn't even, I wasn't even thinking about it. Wasn't on the radar. And that was just an honest, like, man, I would love to work with him. Cause I think, you know, he's probably the best out there today. A AJ is, you know? Right. And then, Lo and behold, it comes around, and then. Uh, but yes, to, to answer your question, AJ was is probably the closest to Sean that I, I, you know that has been. You know, he's he he's undersized, but you don't. He has that ability. There's only been a few people like like Sean and Eddie Guerrero, AJ. You really you don't see like the size disparity because that's how good they are. Right. You know, and they understand, OK, I'm working with this this giant dude. You know, I'm going to get thrown around. I'm going to get hammered, but I'm going to get my, my I'm going to get my my spots in here and I'm going to take advantage of them the best I can. They understood that. And, you know, that's why they're so good. And that's why they can work with anybody. And right. I've always preferred. Like, I think my best matches, guys like Bret Hart, and Kurt Angle and. Eddie Guerrero and Sean, you know, my best matches were, were smaller guys. Right. Um, that, that got it, that understood. And, you know, and, you know, when you work, you know, two big guys, like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a slug fest and you do the same kind of things. And it's like you said, like Sean did, his, you know, he had his style and my style and they just happened to mesh really, really well. And, were you uh, ever but, worried about with, with those smaller guys actually like legitimately, 
hurting them? Because you know you're you're throwing them around like a rag doll. Like <laughs> how, how do you how do you make sure it doesn't go too far? Well, I mean, you know, you know, we don't. I don't think I don't think wrestlers get enough credit for how actually physically, you know, how physically tough you have yeah. to be. You know, everybody has you know everybody has their idea and their preconceived ideas about what professional wrestling sports entertainment is and you know there's you know you can get people into an argument quicker than anything like you know put put an mma fan against you know a, a professional wrestling fan that's uh, it's all crap it's all this, yeah all that. you know and when i was young that used to bother me you know as i've gotten older i was like man i got i got 20 surgeries that says you know <laughs> does it you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't easy stuff, but, um, yeah, you know, I was physical with them, but you just, I mean, it's just being professional and being safe, you know, I mean, and wrestling and what a lot of people really don't understand, you're always just one or two inches away from something being really catastrophic. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, and it's happened. Yeah. Oh, it's happened. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and then when you think about, these guys, you know, they're out on the road 300 dates a year now. So you, you start equating all that, all the, all those bumps and all the, the, you know, and then back in the day you worked all the time, whether you're hurt, you weren't hurt, you know, you're trying to protect something that's hurt and that's how you end up getting hurt even worse, you know, but, uh, I, I yeah, never, you know, I was always, yeah. I mean, you took some abuse with me, but you know, I was safe. I wouldn't, you know, I, I didn't, throw somebody down so that they were going to land on their neck or they were, they were going right. to land awkward. They were going to land hard, but they were going to land flat and they were going to land safe. So, I mean, I kind of prided myself on being, you know, as safe as I could, as violent as I was. So, or you am. know, one of the greatest athletic things I've ever seen was in the late nineties when WrestleMania was in Boston and Sean had that match where Mike Tyson was the guest referee. Oh yeah. But, yeah. But his back was all fucked up. Oh, but he yeah. wrestled anyway, and then, um, and he got he got through it. And the match ended, and then Triple H literally had to like carry him backstage, like he yeah. couldn't walk. And this was after the lights had gone out. It was the last match, and they it, they weren't doing it for the fans. The thing thing was over, and it, and we were kind of staying watching it because I was there, and it was like, oh, he's he's really hurt. Like yeah. they, he couldn't even get backstage and then we didn't see him again for, I don't even remember when he came back, but it was definitely a while after. Probably, yeah, yeah. It was, it, uh, but you, you just, none of us had any idea until he left the ring. It was like, Oh my God, how much pain was that dude in? Yeah. 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 But, he, he went into that with a you know, serious back. Yeah. I think it was kind of a disc, something he had going on, but, uh, yeah. so when, uh, you show up in WWE in 1990 and Ric Flair is there at some point in the early nineties, but he's at a different phase of his career at this point. Right. But still, he's the other guy people mention when they talk about the great, the great workers who could sell everybody. Did he, when you worked with him, what stage of his career was he in at that point? Well, that's, that's a really, so I worked with him a little bit when I was, uh, when I was in WCW, not much, just some house show stuff. And then, uh, his first time in to WW, well, it was still WWF back then. Um, I got to work a few house shows with him, but it wasn't really, and I got the, the year that I worked at WrestleMania against Rick, um, 
you know, Vince came up to me one, it was getting late, you know, it was getting late and I had, didn't have an opponent. And Vince was like, man, I'm really sorry. You know, I, I just, you know, we got this going on and that going on. And I completely, you know, I would, <laughs> I'm going to say he forgot about me, but I, I was down on the depth chart at the time and yeah, he felt bad. So he gave me the option of, 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 of two guys. He said, these are the, you, you know, you can work with this guy or you can work with Rick. And, um, I said, I'm going to work with Rick Flair. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Vince looked at me, you know, he was like, like, really? He, he was, he was shocked that I didn't want to work with the younger guy. I was like, this is a no brainer. I want to work with Flair, you know? So Flair was just coming back after being in WCW and getting treated, you know, you know, they just really misused and mistreated him down there. And, uh, so, you know, it was, it, it, it was, uh, you know, he thanked me. He, he thanked me after the, the WrestleMania match for, he says, you've, you've restored my confidence in myself. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, it was, it was like, you know, it, it took me a while to, to, to figure it out what he meant, but, uh, I was shocked. Like, cause it, you know, I'm like you, I'm like, dude, you're, you're Ric Flair. Right. You're, you're an all-timer. You're the GOAT, brother. You are, you know, that was before everybody, everybody was the GOAT. He was the GOAT, right? And uh, I was just blown away that, you know, that his confidence was so low. And, um, you know, he talks about it a little bit in, in his documentary. Um, but I was, I mean, it was just, it was a, such an honor for me to be in the ring, especially in WrestleMania against, you know, against nature boy. I mean, I was, I was like a kid in a candy store. Right. What kind of, uh, what kind of athlete were you in high school? You I, had I to a, have been a good athlete. I was a good, yeah, I was, I, I was a basketball player and, uh, uh, you know, I, I had some pretty good hops. I, I, I could, I could get up a little bit. Were you like a guy. power forward? <laughs> where, where were you like an, were well, you a post up I, I usually, guy? What were you? My my true position would have been a would would have been a would have been a four, but I ended up having to play in the post most of the time because even back then I was a I was bigger. Uh, you know, I wasn't big like I was. When I got into wrestling, but for a basketball player, you know, in the in the late well in the early eighties, you know, I was two hundred pounds, and especially in high school, that was that was pretty big back then. Yeah, and then you know then played when I played in college, you know, I got up to about 235, 240. And, you know, <laughs> I looked like, I was kind of like, I was like the, like Carl Malone, I guess, you know, how big he was. Um, but I see, it's funny. Like I'll see pictures of, you know, back then. And I'm like, man, I look like a, I look like a giant walking stick. <laughs> yeah. I was so used to being now, you know, over 300 pounds for all these years. It's like, okay, people just call me big, but, but, uh, yeah, no I, football I to, for you? No, you know, I was that kid. Like, I think I would have probably had better scholarship offers if I'd have played, kept playing football. Tight end. Yeah, but, you know, I was just like, everybody said, you got to go play football. And I'm the kid that goes, okay, I'm going to play basketball. Right. You, you know, you swerved just, the other you way. Know, kind of marched to my, you know, the beat of my own drum. Hey, here's a quick break to remind you that season one of our brand new podcast, Boom Bust is launching on May 20th. 
It is called Boom Bust, The Rise and Fall of HQ, hosted by Alyssa Bereznak. And we dive into uh, one of the crazier stories in recent memory, a trivia app that was seemingly worth a ton of money. And then all of a sudden it wasn't everything that happened. It's great. Check it out. Subscribe on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Boom Bust, it is called. Go check it out. I remember when you showed up in WWE, and it's funny because, I mean, God, it was 30 years ago, but that when you were doing some of the stuff at your size, it just hadn't happened before. You know, the big guys from the 80s were the Hogan types. It was like clothesline, leg drop, stuff like that. Right. And you're doing, you're walking along the, the, the ring ropes and, and it was like, what is happening? Where, where did this guy come from? Cause I, I didn't follow WCW at that point. You'd only been there for a couple of years mm-hmm. anyway. Right. You showed up and it was like an immediate impact. Yeah. That was when I, you know, my, when I got into the business and I looked at the product, I was like, and that, that's, I, I had the same takeaway as you did. Like, you know, all the big guys, they don't, uh, you know, they don't do a whole lot. So, you know, I said, okay, well, you're, you know, you know, I'm I'm pretty athletic. So, and I was fortunate enough to work with Don Jardine a lot when I first broke in the business. John Jardine was the spoiler, wore a mask, but he was the first one that I'd ever seen do the, uh, well, it's called old school now, but, you know, he would take a guy and and walk the ropes. I was just blown away by it. Jardine was about six, five. Yeah. And I was like, Okay, well, as soon as he's as soon as he's gone from the business, as soon as he retires, I said that's mine, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, so that yeah, that's just like okay, I'm gonna do things. I'm gonna do things that people aren't used to seeing guys my size do. And it took me a while once I got to WWE because I had to I had to I had to pull in the reins a little bit because it didn't it didn't necessarily work doing that stuff all the time as the undertaker. Right. So when I, when I'd work, you know, I would work, I would work really, really slow and, you know, and I would stalk and I would, you know, and then all of a sudden, bang, I would do something and hit a big flying clothesline or do something wrong. People would be like, what just happened there? You know? So it took me a while to figure out how to, to put all that stuff in and still make the, and let the character, you know, do what it was supposed to do. So did you create but, uh, the character or did you co-create it with Vince or how, how did that work when you got to WWE? So Vince, it was Vince's, uh, creation and he, he had it. And I guess he had had it for a while. He just never had the the right guy. And, um, obviously he was waiting for a big guy with no personality to, <laughs> to come along. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, so yeah, so he, he, he he gave it to me and uh, he called me, brought me up to to Stanford, showed me the you know the storyboards of what is you know what his brainchild was there, and uh, and I was like, okay, you know I, we'll see. And then I just kind of started studying, like, okay, what is this guy? You know, what is what is this Undertaker? So, you know, I start studying like Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees and and then trying to figure out. And then, man, I picked I picked uh, uh, Jake the Snake's brain all the time. You know, he's so wrestling. 
his intelligence for a business was just second to none, especially with dark characters. Yes. I mean, so, you know, uh, really got a lot of really nice insight from, from Jake. And then, um, you know, as it, as it kind of progressed and, and Vince knew that he could trust me, you know, then I would come to him and say, look, I want to do this with a character. Uh, you know, I think I need to move in this direction. And, and, and fortunately, you know, our working relationship, you know, it, it was what it was. And he let me kind of tweak and change the character as I felt like it needed to be. When did you feel, what was the moment that you remember when you said, like, what match was it when you were like, oh, this is, this is happening. This is going to be, this is going to be my thing. I, I see the roadmap now to real success here. Yeah, that was probably, um, it's probably, so I, one of the first guys that I got to work with, or, you know, my big angle was with. Uh, the ultimate warrior yeah yeah at that time you know warrior and hogan were kind of you know they were kind of on the same plane as far as who the top you know who the top draw was and back then we would run you know we would run two different towns a night sometimes even three and so warrior and i would would headline one of the towns and then hogan and whoever he was working would headline another town somewhere else and um, I think I knew I had kind of arrived. We did a segment and it was Paul Bear's funeral parlor. And, uh, he was interviewing, he was interviewing warrior and I come out of a casket, a stand up coffin, lock warrior into the, uh, you know, I lock him in the casket, beat the casket all up. And just from the reactions, everybody I said, okay, yeah, we're, we're here. I'm in. Yeah, we're this is this is strong. Just you know, you can just tell by the reactions of the people. Like, okay, we got them, and uh, we have, you know we were off and running. And you were like, "I will be this guy for the next thirty years. I can that feel I it in my bones." <laughs> <laughs> that 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 uh, there was no way that I could have ever imagined uh, that that kind of longevity. You so you're taking off with WWE. I was WWF then became WWE, right. but during a really weird time for the company where it's kind of the post, you, know, you have the eighties, you have the height of Hogan, right? the, the Friday night main event, all this great stuff. And then it hits the early nineties and things start flipping. And Whoa. we get to the 95, 96 range. All of a sudden w WCW is stealing poaching guys mm -hmm. and they have all the momentum and the guys are fleeing to WCW left and right. And you were the one guy who stayed right. at that point. It sounds like for, from everything I've ever read, you were like the leader behind the scenes. You were like the guy, every, every who WWE, w, WCW, whoever, there's always that one guy who's kind of running the locker room. When did you become that guy? What year? And when was it? Uh, I guess it was, it was, it was somewhere in that, in that era, probably, uh, probably a little before, you know, when we were getting our butts kicked, I mean, ratings wise, you know, everything, we were just getting hammered. And, um, you know, it's just like, a, the guys that stayed or the guys that were still there, we just like, you know what, we're going to dig ourselves out of this. And, uh, you know, it's going to, I always knew it would, you know, it was, we, we would come back out on top, but yeah, 
it, it was just going to be how long it took and, you know, how bad it was going to have to get before big changes were made. Um, but it, you know, that was something else. I mean, it just kind of ha- happened and it was like the way I looked at things, um, you know, and people ask me, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you jump ship when you could have? And it's like, well, one, those guys down there told me before I went to, before I had, you know, before I went to WWE, WWF at the time, you know, they said, I went in to renegotiate a contract, right? I'd been there about a year and my contract was coming due. So I go in and meet with uh, Jim Hurd, who was running it. He was running at uh, WCW at the time, Ole Anderson, uh, Jim Barnett. And I'm looking for just a little bit of a bump, you know, just a little bump in pay. I'm still, you know, I'm still relatively, you know, green. I've only been around for a few years and uh, I'm just looking for a little extra cheese. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they uh, uh, go, no, I don't think so. I said, we're going to resign you at, at your current deal. And he goes, they go, look, no one's ever going to pay money to see you wrestle. You're, you're a good athlete. You're a really good athlete, but no one's going to ever pay money to see you wrestle. Like, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> that stung a little bit. And then. Um, so you're never going back after that. Yeah. Once I left and, and, and all Vince ever does. And. and he, he gives you an opportunity. He doesn't promise you like, man, I'm going to make you this. I'm going to make you that. He says, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do something. And that's what he did with me. He gave me an opportunity to, 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 you know, be a success in this industry. And I was like, Hey, he believed in me. He gave me the opportunity. It. That's all I needed. So and when did you become the leader? When did you become the leader of the locker room then? Cause I'm always fascinated about that dynamics. Cause it, it, it's basically like an NBA team or an NFL team or a baseball team. You've dozens of wrestlers. You might have 50 wrestlers in an event. You might even have more than that, but somebody's kind of has to be the alpha dog. If somebody's fucking up in the ring, if somebody's putting somebody in harm's way, if somebody's not following whatever the instructions of that day were, there needs to be somebody that kind of puts everybody in place. You became that person. Yeah, I would, it would probably, I'd have to say probably around that 95, 96, you know, that, that time period in there is when it really, I guess, became, uh, you know, it, it became a talking point. I, I mean, maybe I was doing it beforehand, but, you know, it's just like, to me, it, it you know, and believe me, I had, I had plenty of good times and, and, you know, I, I burned that midnight oil and everything else, but nothing came before business. I don't care how late you stayed out the night before yeah, or what you did at bell time is go time. And you know, you don't come in and you know, you don't, you're not, you're not going to be hung over or you're not going to drag ass because you know, you, you had a, you had a pretty good night the night before, you know, and that's kind of how I think it started. And then, you know, it was just like, and then just kind of, you know, people would, they, they trusted me, I guess, because I had a, you know, like I had this connection with Vince, um, you know, and you normally want to, when, when, like when you're one of the talent has, you know, is tight with somebody in the office, right. You know, well, they're a stooge, you know, or they're, you know, okay, well, they're a snitch or, you know, I never got that because everybody knew, I think I, I was, I was able to, 
I could go and talk with Vince or whoever or whatever agent or, you know, and then I could also talk to our talent and, and, and like give them, you know, my perspective and, you know, what I had seen, at, you know, what I've been through at that time. And I think they, they appreciated the fact that, uh, you know, I didn't play one side against the other, um, you know, but I was a pretty good, I was a pretty good spot to start, you know, like when guys were, you know, when they had issues or they didn't like the way they were being booked or they didn't, you know, they would bounce things off of me um, or they'd want to know how to handle a certain situation. And, you know, it just kind of grew from there. Um, but I think everyone knew that what if you and I were to have a conversation in the, in the locker room, that's where it would stop, you know? Right. You know, and, and if somebody was doing something that they shouldn't be doing or if they were getting in trouble or, you know, not paying bar tabs or not doing whatever that needed to, be, you know, they knew as soon as I found out they were going to, you know, they knew they were going to get it, you know? So there was that, just that, that trust factor and, and that, uh, you know, I was, what I said is what I meant. And, you know, I, I'm not like going to, I'm not going to go run off and say, Oh, you're not going to believe what so-and-so is doing. You know, well, it sounds like I handled it internally most times, you know, I handled things in the locker room before they ever got to, um, you know, before they ever had to go to management. Was the underlying theme of this, like, if we're going to settle this disagreement now, and if we don't settle it, we're going to really settle it right now. Like, was there a physical component to it? Uh, I really never had to go that far. Really? Yeah. Um, it was implied. Like I, said, I, I never, I never presented myself or I never as a bully. Now I've got people's faces and let them, you know, but normally I didn't try to, if, if I knew it would might lead to something, you know, aggressive like that. Normally I take somebody away from the, the group. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Uh, you know, back in the day, it was always like, <laughs> you, you always knew something bad was going to happen. If you got like, if somebody said, Hey, can I talk to you in the shower? You know, you had to walk into the shower, like looking over your shoulder because you, you didn't know if you're going to get sucker punched or whatever. Right. So if there was somebody, you know, a lot of times if, if there was a case where somebody really screwed up, you know, I'd, I'd pull them aside, you know, and, and then say, look, man, this ain't going to fly. You know, you can't do this and all that. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't intentionally on more serious issues. I, I wouldn't embarrass people in front of the, you know, the rest of the guys. Now there were certain times where that kind of worked, you know, you kind of, as we call it, we kind of rib on the square where, yeah, I'm kind of making this a joke, but if you look deep enough into me, you know, that I'm, I'm trying to make light of this before it has to, you know, before we got to make that trip to the shower, you know? So, um, well, so here's an example. So you have Michaels who's been really honest about, yeah, I acted like an asshole in the mid, in the mid nineties. Like I definitely right. was a problem behind the scenes. He's talked about it and him and Bret Hart, they're doing a whole, you know, seven, eight month thing. They're not getting along. Right. Um, and it's just getting more and more contentious. Is that a situation where you feel like you have to step in and like smooth it over or, or grab the two of them and be like, let's all go to lunch. <laughs> no, see at that time. So Brett, you know, so Brett had more tenure on me. Yeah. While he was at, well, at that time, especially. So there, you know, there's certain guys like, you know, 
uh, now I always, I always got along with Brett, but, but Brett really more of a, a kind of a quiet leader, you know, like yeah. he took the business very seriously. Uh, and you know, that, that's kind of the way he led. Um, so, you know, that, so it, there was, you know, that part there, I had to be, you know, uh, you to be careful because I, I didn't, I didn't have the, you know, I wasn't there long enough yet to, to say, Hey, hey man, you guys need to cut the ship, you know? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind breaking it up, but you know, there he was, I was still, you know, like I said, Brett was more tenured than I was. And, you know, there, there's that, that whole respect level with me and, and the guys that come before me. And, but, um, what was your reaction when when everything finally blew up? The famous match when when uh, Vince Vince basically steals the title from Brett because he's leaving, and that turns into a whole thing, which basically is the best thing that ever happened to WWE in that decade. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I, I was pissed. Um, uh, you know, I, I was pissed about the whole thing because I felt like there I could have, I possibly could have been used uh to get what we needed yeah like you know take sean out of this let me do it and then i'll do business on the other side right and i think brett probably would have went for that you know i mean there was such disdain at that time between the two of them and you know and brett you know was going you know brett was leaving um but i I was just kind of at that point i was like you know if you like if you just kind of come to me with this too, you know, and it, I mean, he, it's his company and, you know, I mean, he did what he thought was best, but I was like, dude, I think I could have helped this whole thing. Out <laughs> right. because, I'm right know, here. I'm right here. And you know, I'm going to do business and, you know, I, but it happened. And uh, like, I, I was really pissed. Like, you know, the, the next day, um, you know, I don't know. We were supposed to show up by noon for a TV day. And I don't know. I think I rolled in about five the next day. Cause I didn't know, like I was so pissed about the whole thing and the way it went down. Like I just, like I had to really gather myself because that was, you know, my intention. Like when I got there, I was like, I'm going off on somebody about this, you know? And, um, well, you love you know, Vince too. I mean, Vince had done right by you and you're probably disappointed in him, Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm disappointed. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really disappointed in the whole situation, and I don't want to put myself like I was so angry. Like I don't want to go in there and start. You know, I mean, believe me, Vince and I have had our disagreements, and you know, we've had our, but it was more the issues were more centered around you know what I had going on and not what somebody else was doing. You know what I mean? But I also always look at the big picture before I look at my own thing. I look at the big picture of you know, it's what's the cliche, what's best for business. Right. So, but I was like, Oh man, if I, if I go, I'm, I'm, I'm going in there raising hell and I'm not sure that, you know, I want to do that. So it took me all day long to finally figure out, okay, you got to calm down and you got to hear his side of it. You know, by that point, I, you know, I'd already talked with Brett and, you know, everything had already happened, you know, the fight and everything else, all that had already already happened and so yeah Brett punched so, uh, up yeah yeah so I had to figure out okay well I need to hear I need to hear Vince's side of this and then give my perspective and then at least you know say look if this kind of shit happens again you know you gotta you gotta involve me here because 
you know, it doesn't have to go down like this. Right. And, uh, you know, and he agreed and, you know, uh, you know, it, it all, I guess, you know, it all worked out. It just, it was sad, you know, cause I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really tight with Brett, you know, uh, you know, Brett could have done some things differently. Sean could have done things differently. Vince could have done things differently. It could have been, but then just like you said, I mean, that's one of the great wrestling stories of, of, of that era and that decade. The Montreal screw job, you know? It's so. it's one of the best... The way it worked out was one of the great outcomes in the history of the business because not only you established Vince as now this villain where now it's crossing over real life into storylines exactly. and things like that, but also Brett leaving was good for the WWE because, you know, it opened... They had a lot of talent back then. It opened the door <laughs> for some people to get bigger shine too, which sometimes, you know, in sports and in wrestling... Sometimes it's good when somebody leaves, you know, sometimes you have the talent that can step in. Yeah. You know, but it, you know, there again uh, on that, I mean, that issue, and I agree with you to a, to a certain degree, but you know, there's also that point where, you know, when we came up, it's just like, Hey, that's, those are the guys, the guys on top, those are the guys you're shooting for. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? The, that's okay. This, these are the guys that are making the money. If you want to make the money, then that's why the, that's why the, that's why the attitude era was so just awesome. I mean, you're talking about stacked. I mean, <laughs> that roster was just stacked. And of course, you know, Steve, you know, Steve was at the top and you had rock there. You had triple H there. You had Mick Foley there. You had undertaker chain just, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, it was just like everybody was scratching and clawing to try to be, you know, to get that top spot or be in that top spot with, with Steve, you know, it's like the, it's almost like the NBA. Cause I was thinking about that watching the Michael Jordan doc when he wins his first three titles in the early nineties, the league's just stacked. There's just oh, yeah. hall of famers everywhere. And I look at that late nineties thing where. You know, wrestling kind of ebbs and flows depending on who the best seven or eight guys are at a given True. time. And in that time, it's just Hall of Famers all over the place. And then you have The Rock on the way up, who's probably, I would say, all things considered, Mike skills, just everything, probably the most naturally talented wrestler we have. Would you Would you agree with that? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah. Rock obviously was a tremendous athlete. You know, had the look, but I mean, Rock's deal was his was it Mike skills. I mean, that's, that's what, what mean. set him. That's what set him apart from from everybody he was just so entertaining you know and uh, i've never seen anything like it because where when he was on the rise you're like this guy's gonna be like an actor like he was, he was the one yeah. guy i've ever seen in wrestling was like he's clearly leaving at some point and going to make movies because yeah absolutely yeah he, he probably made the right decision to leave <laughs> <laughs> yeah you could just tell though with him uh, i think he got like one of his like one of the first little bit roles that he got, you knew, you know, it was only a matter of time. Uh, he was just, he just had too much personality and too much charisma. Um, you know, and, and then I think that, you know, he had that desire to go do that. Obviously he had the desire to do it. I mean, he did. Um, but, uh, well, yeah, and then you had, whole, you had one of your most famous matches during that stretch too, when you almost killed Mick Foley. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's still Mick the craziest Foley. bump I've ever seen in my life. The the one off for the one through. What was the one where his tooth went through his nose? See, so that was the one where I choke slammed him through the top yeah. of the cell. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that. So that cell wasn't supposed to break like that. Right. Right. So it was only supposed to give give way. I don't think that, people know that. I don't think yeah, people I don't, know. I mean, some do, the, some don't. But as we're up there on the top walking around, now, like, I'd, I'd already had that match once with Sean. But Sean, you know, was half of what Mick weighs and, you know, half of what, you know, and I'm, like I said, at the time, I'm 315, 320. And Mick's probably, I don't know, probably 280. And we're walking around on those those uh, chain link panels and you can hear the the wire that has them fastened to the the pole and you can hear them ting, they're just shooting off right and as you step you can just like whoa i don't oh my that god the, i don't remember that from the first time i was up here with sean right <laughs> and I, I swear the fortune i'm just really fortunate right before i choke slam him like I step off of the panel and step onto the to the the poles. If I hadn't, you go with them. We could have had a we could have had a really really far worse outcome, and it was pretty bad as it was. But yes, his, so he landed. His incisor went through his lip, and then lodged in his nose. Right. He loved it. He's he, he's the ha- happiest anyone ever would have been with that outcome. Well, yeah, right? He's like laughing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he, I mean, he's, he is like, you know, I mean, he is, he's on, uh, he's in Lululand at this point, right? After that month, <laughs> right. right? And I, I can tell I'm looking in his eyes and it looks like a slot machine. I mean, he, he's, his eyes are going, I'm like, and I'm hitting him and I'm telling him like, Mick, you know, let's go, let's go home, man. You're, yeah. You're, and he's like, just give me a second. Give me a second. But like you just get sometimes you just get distracted by the weirdest things and like there's this what I thought was a, just a giant booger in his nose right and I'm look I'm like oh it's just disgusting and then finally you know he realizes it's his tooth oh my he god takes, he takes the tooth and hands it to the ref unbelievable like, only in wrestling man he just took his tooth out of his nose and. Uh, but yeah, man, it just put, it put a hole right through his lip and that's where it stopped. You know, but the- I mean, it's a famous moment. Everybody's seen it. I'm sure it's been viewed a kajillion times on YouTube. I think the part people don't fully understand unless you've actually been to one of these events and been like on the ground floor is how high that cage is. Cause on oh, TV man. it's, it's like, oh, that seems high. But when you're actually like, cause I, I remember a couple years ago, Shane McMahon did that flying elbow jump off the top of the cage and it was right in front of us. And I actually thought he was going to die in midair. Like it's, it's five feet further than you think it is. Oh, and you're watching, you're like, Oh my God, what's that? You almost think the guy's going to do like a three sixty. It's so far. It's, uh, there's way too much margin in my book. There's way too much margin of error for that. Yeah. Um, you know, Shane felt like it was, I was in that match too. So, yeah, you know, there's a, there's a recurring theme here, but like, I, I was like, I didn't want any part of it. And, and that cage, that cage is five foot taller than the one that Mick, that I threw Mick off of. Yeah. So, I mean, that thing is just, I mean, 
he looked like a little ant when I was laying there at the table looking up at him. I mean, he <laughs> he didn't look that big. That's just because how far away he was. And then that's a really small, hard landing area hit that desk, you know. Well, that's the other thing I think about with 98 to 03, basically. The bumps just started. And ECW had something to do with this, too, I think, because they're pushing sure. the envelope. It it becomes every show has to kind of outdo the last one. Eight, right. 15 feet isn't high enough anymore. Let's do 17 feet. Oh, let's try to get 20. And um, and on top of it, that's when the whole the steel chairs in the head and nobody's realizing like that could be potentially dangerous, too. The amount of punishment just in that four year span that everybody has taken is like bonkers to look back at. And oh yeah. I, I look I look back at some of that stuff and 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 just think, my goodness, you know, it's a it's amazing that there weren't more really, really serious injuries. And uh and some of that stuff that they were doing at ECW were just I mean, it was completely off the chain. Uh right, you know dangerous. At, at least, you know, at least with our group, I mean, we had you know, we had a stunt, a stunt guy there. And it's, I mean, it doesn't change the fact that it's a super dangerous thing, but at least you have somebody there that tells you the practicality of what might happen. And, you know, like, uh, you might not want to do it that way. You might want to, you know, there, I think it was just like, Hey, it's a free for all. And, um, yeah, it's really amazing that we didn't get more guys really seriously injured during that time period. That was also right around that time. You you switch gimmicks a little bit, right? And you, be, so you became went, the American badass. You re, you basically retired the Undertaker for a couple of years. For yeah, for basically. I mean, I kept I kept a little bit of it, a few elements, but not, for the most part, I don't think I don't think I would have been able to survive the Attitude Era in that that mainstream Undertaker character at the time. Yeah. Because I mean, if you look back at that stuff, I mean, there there were the shackles were off, man. I mean, it was a, you know, there was nothing. The interviews, I mean, they were cutting edge, and it, they were, you know, they were real. And it would have been tough for me to to stay so locked into that. You know, as great as the gimmick is, there's a lot of confines to the gimmick. There's yeah. a lot of things that I can do and I can't do. And you know. When you got got somebody like Stone Cold out there cutting promos and rock calling everything, you know, Mickey Mouse and you know, I would they would eat me alive. Right. You know, I mean well, I the American badass I, it it tied into your real personality way more. It's a it was like, yeah, oh wow, yeah. look at this. I mean, yeah, I mean I you know, all the bikes and I've rode motorcycles all my life. So yeah, it was it was just it was Mark Calloway pumped up a you know, a few notches. Yeah. And uh it was it was it was fun because it was kind of it just let me loose for a little while, you know. It let me cut promos and it let me talk shit and it let me do things that I hadn't been able to do. And um and then it what it allowed me to do is to go back to the character and make that character fresh all over again. And but you know, even when I went back to The Undertaker, I retained like some of the style that I worked, I kind of kept some of the American badass style. And, you know, I kind of just kind of kept, you know, interweaving the two characters as we've moved along through all these years. 
Hey, wanted to take a break to tell you about a couple relatively new Ringer podcasts. The first one is called The Wire Way Down in the Hole. It's hosted by Van Lathan and Jamel Hill. They're slowly plowing through five seasons of The Wire. They're hitting the tail end of season one right now. I, I just had this terrible feeling something bad's going to happen to Wallace. But check that out. The Wire Way Down in the Hole. If you love The Wire, this podcast is really good. Another one that is really good that we have, Behind the Billions, hosted by Brian Koppelman and David Levine, the co-creators and showrunners of Billions. Every Sunday night after you watch Billions on Showtime, I loved last week's episode, by the way, uh, you can hear them break it down almost like a director's commentary of the show. So that's happening. And then TV Concierge, our new show uh, exclusively on Spotify, little 12 to 15 minute reviews of TV shows that we're watching. And then finally, one last one, Flying Coach with Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll, which is not necessarily a pop culture podcast, although it, it has veered in that way, but they're doing that one once a week and that one's really great and all proceeds are going to charity for that as well. So that's what's new on the Ringer podcast front for us. Let's go back to The Undertaker. So we head into uh, the mid-2000s and you're just you're one of the guys carrying the company in the NBA. Like I look at Michael Jordan. It's like, what was his peak year? 92, probably athletically. He's the best, but right. 97, 98, he's figured out more of the mental game. What was, if you look back, what was your peak year? What was the year where you were, had the athleticism combined with a complete understanding of what was going on? I would say probably, um, I don't know that I could just like say one peak year, but I, I'd say pretty much from as far as the understanding of the business and feeling like there was nothing that came up that I couldn't, couldn't I, I'd handle. probably say two, 2003 to 2008. That I makes felt sense. like, yeah, I felt like, I mean, I had a, I had a pretty good grip on, you know, I, I could, I could go out without, you know, having any kind of knowledge about the other guy and have a match that, you know, people would be, you know, like, whoa, that, you know, that was good stuff. And I was still, you know, I could still move, uh, you know, I could still move really well at that time. Yeah. And I think that's like, that's what's so hard now. Like when I go back and watch, you know, I grade myself on, on those years, right? Like, wow, man, you could move. And, you know, right. then I got to watch these stuff like, you know, the, the WrestleMania with Roman. And I was like, whoa, what the hell happened there? You know? And I don't, I don't give myself the benefit of like grading on the curve. Yeah. It's just like, okay, that's what I should be doing. And, you know, and this is what I'm actually doing, but. How aware were you of just the mortality of a wrestling career? Cause when you came up, think about the guys that were there in 1990, like Hogan's there, Ric Flair, ultimate warrior, those guys right. come and go. Then you have the Bret Hart, Stone Cold, all those guys, those guys come and go. You're still there. When do yeah. you start looking internally and going, oh shit, when it, I might be nearing that point too that I saw with all these other guys? Yeah, that was probably um shortly, probably in the middle, probably the middle of the of the Sean and Triple H matches there. I felt pretty good. I felt pretty good for the Sean match, the first one. Uh I felt you know, I could kind of, I kind of could sense that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't moving exactly the same way that I used to, but 
I could still get it, you know, I could still get it done. And, um, but it was really, I think it was, so after the first, first triple H match, not the one in Houston, but the, out of the, that, that force, that four series with, uh, with Sean and, and that's when I had my first hip fixed. And, um, yeah, I was, I was like, okay. And that kind of gave me a little bit of, a little bit of life. But then, because when you get things going on like that with your hips and you know, your gate gets off your wall, everything. Yeah. Kinda, it's like structurally, you're like a building. It's like yeah, knocking out, knocking out like a floor of a building. And now you're like off out of whack. Yeah. You're out of whack. So you get that one side fixed and then it's the, it didn't take long for the other side to, you know, you have to kind of relearn how to walk and, it's, it's really been a, since that first tip shot, it's really been a struggle, um, you know, to, to try and, and keep yourself not only healthy, but, you know, at a level to perform 20 um, surgeries for you closing in probably. Yeah. I'm probably close to 20. So both hips <laughs> knee. I, I've, I've had scopes. I need to do something with my right knee. Now that's like my number one issue now is my right knee. Um, uh, so my hips and the only reason I got to continue working was that I did a thing called the Birmingham hip resurface. I did it in, in, uh, in New York. So, well, obviously if you saw the Dr. Sue did that and what yeah, it was do, graphic, if you know anything about hip surgeries or, or hip replacements, you know, normally they come in there, they cut the femur off and then they put that big, huge metal prosthesis in there. Yeah. Well, if I'd have had that, then my career would have pretty much been over. And, uh, and that's what I thought that it was going to happen in, uh, I thought that was going to happen in about 2011. Uh, I just couldn't, it, it, by 2011, like if I'm standing up and on my feet for most of the day, by the end of the day, I couldn't stand anymore. I just had searing pain down my leg. So I go and see, uh, my, my main orthopedic surgeon is Dr. Bird. He's the team physician for the Titans, Tennessee Titans. And I said, I, all right, Dr. Bird, I think, you know, I, I, I think, you know, it's time. I can't, you know, I can't do this anymore. And he goes, Mark, he goes, it was time five years ago. He says, I don't know how you've lasted on what you got this long. And I was like, okay. You know, and I, I so I'd come to grips with my mortality and, and, uh, so I went home, he's in, like I said, he's in Nashville. So I come home and I was like, all right, well, the career's over. I don't need this hair anymore. So <laughs> I shaved my hair off. And the day after I shaved my hair off, he calls me and he goes, uh, Hey Mark, I just thought of something. There's this doctor in New York who's doing this thing called the hip, the Birmingham hip resurface. And he says, I think you might be a really good candidate for this surgery. At this time, they'd only been doing it. They'd been doing the surgery for less than 10 years. And, uh, he goes, I think you'd be a good candidate. I think you ought to go see him. And he says, then you can make up your mind one way or another. So I go see Dr. Sue in New York and, you know, he does a bone density test and everything. He's, he said, you're a great candidate. He goes, I said, well, I said, if this goes well, I plan on getting back in the ring. And he looked at me and he goes, well, he goes, I will say this. He says, that would be the biggest test that anybody has put on this, you know, this, this surgery, uh, this hip, you know? And I said, well, that's where we're at. So I did the surgery, re and came home, rehabbed, and started training. 
And that was between that was between the the two Triple H matches that happened. I came back and everything worked out fine. But basically, what they do is is they take the head of the femur, they shave it, they shave it all down to get all the arthritis off of it, got all the spurs out of the joint, and then they they put a titanium cap over the bone instead of instead of cutting the bone off, they just put a cap over it, and then they go into the uh, acetabulum. And they hammer our same kind of titanium cup in there, and it, it it just I mean it's it's amazing. It's like it's like taking a top like when you I have one I don't know if it's the company sent me one. I wish I could knew exactly where it was. I'd show it, but because it's just amazing. Like you can take the part that goes on the bone and you can put it in the cup and you can spin it. And it spins like a top. That's wow! How it, it's, it's amazing. I wish, like I said, I wish I could well, see we should, it. we should mention that your pain tolerance is pretty legendary. Like even, even in that Foley match <laughs> we were talking about, you had a broken foot, right? Yeah. I went into that match with a broken foot and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you're jumping yeah. from the top of the cage down to the ring, which is Yeah. You can see insane. me kind of give, yeah. You can see when I land that I kind of, Ooh, you know? Yeah. But oh, I forgot I had a broken point, foot. <laughs> at that point i was like i was more concerned whether or not mick was breathing or not Jesus. to worry about my foot um yeah i've been I, i've got a pretty high pain tolerance and you know most times i think it's a blessing but then there's other times you think like you know maybe you you know you're maybe you're tougher than you are smart and uh you know it's kind of what we're dealing with now in this whole process is like right you know are, are, what are you doing to yourself looking, you know, trying to get this, this match that you want to have and this, this ending that you want, what are you doing long-term? And Well, and then um, also like the difference between 25 years, 30 years, 32 years, at some point, the, the incredible career is the incredible career. Like how long do you keep adding to it? Exactly. Um, you know, and it, you know, there's this the chance too now at this point, like I always, you know, I'm really cognizant of like, I don't want to do damage to what, you know, the legacy that I have. Like, I, I don't want people so, I was so sad about, you know, Ali at the end, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He had had all those great fights, but he, you know, cause he got screwed out of all of his money. He kept fighting. And then, you know, there's this guy that were just hammering him. They had no, you know, that was, I'm a huge boxing fan, right? So, yeah. I mean, I, I, as a Me kid, too. you know, I almost cried watching Larry Holmes beat Muhammad Ali and Holmes looking at the ref like, are you going to stop this or not, you know? And, uh, well, remember the Sports Illustrated cover after that? And it's just Ali sitting in the, in his corner, just faces all swollen. All swollen. And it's just, and it's, oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. And it's funny with, with boxing and I think MMA a little bit too, they always have to have like the two extra fights before they realize that they're actually done. Like they need to get the shit kicked out of them two extra times. And it's like, Oh, I, I must be done. Yeah. yeah like yeah, oh, really only that. Hagger is the only one who out of all my favorites is the only one who never had those two extra fights. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I loved Hagler, man. Gosh, dang. Yeah, I love watching him fight. That fight with him and Hearns is the greatest four rounds ever. They just um, showed it on ABC a couple weeks ago. I think it's the greatest 10 minutes of all time. 
whatever oh it is. God, 11 what minutes. A, that was just, that was, that was just awesome. It was like, it well, was you know almost what? like it was scripted. <laughs> you know what else is amazing? Hagler Leonard, which was such an iconic fight. Right. It's like a week. It might even, no, it's a week after Andre uh, Hogan. It's one was way it? or the other. Yeah, it's one weekend was Andre Hogan, and then the next weekend is Hagler Leonard. Wow. Man. Pretty crazy uh, spring. Hey, before we go, I wanted to, uh, you have such a fascinating relationship with Vince McMahon. Mm-hmm. I think it seems like, you know, a lot of people have a lot of complicated feelings about him. I, I personally have had a great relationship with him, but um, you seem to have the best relationship with him. Why, yeah, uh, why is your relationship the best with him? I, you know, I, I don't know. I think, you know, one, this business um, leads to a lot of between talent and, or, you know, it used to be back in the day, we used to call them the booker, right? The yeah. booker, you know, and so there's always, there's always been this bread, this, this kind of contentiousness between the talent and the, you know, and, and the management. And um, I, I don't know. I think it's probably just the trust level and the fact that, you know, just through the years, like one, like I never forget that he gave me that opportunity that, you know, that's, and a lot of people call me silly and naive because you should go, you should go, you should go for the money. Right. Well, that's, that's not the way I'm, I'm wired whether it be good or it be bad, it happened to work out okay for me. But I just think, I think, you know, he always knew no matter what that he could trust me. And in turn, I could never say that there's been a time that, you know, that he's screwed me over. And so even like our relationship today, I mean, he's still my boss, obviously, but we hardly ever, talk business anymore I, there's usually somebody else that like if i have have an issue with something I, I deal with somebody else and then you know me and him we talk more as you know as, as friends and unless something big comes up you know or you know if he's wants me to work wrestlemania then he you know he'll usually when nobody else will call me he has to force himself to call me but I think it's just the trust and then um, just being through so much stuff together, you know, yeah. I was with him. I was with him during the, the trial back in the day. Um, yeah. Funny story about that. He had all that going on, right? Like he had the bodybuilding thing and then the, the trial and all of it's just really going to hell. So he was at the time like a big, he's a big Redskins fan right? Washington Redskins. I'm a big Dallas Cowboy fan, right? Even with all that going on, we made a bet, right? Because, you know, Dallas plays Washington twice a year. Anyway, yeah. so we just made a casual, you know, a casual bet over a hundred bucks of who was going to win the game. As usual, Cowboys win. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he was he was in the middle of going back and forth in the trial. He sent somebody to TV, he wasn't going to be there. He sent somebody with a hundred dollars in pennies to pay me off. <laughs> I mean, with with the whole world potentially just caving in on him, 
You know, I mean, that, wow. you could not, you could look at that man, honestly, and everything could be just going completely to shit. And you ask him how his day is, it's fucking great. I mean, how can you not? You, I mean, he's just, that's just how he is. And, you know, and, and I guess I have a lot of that, you know, so I wear a few more emotions on my sleeve than he does. But I mean, I, I, I we're, we're very similar that way. Like with my pain tolerance, I could be in, you know, I can be in excruciating pain. And, you know, I'll be able to sit here and have this conversation with you. I'm not going to, you know, but well, we just have a lot of similarities in our, in our, in our personalities. And I think it's just years of trust and, and I don't know. It just, it I didn't realize until I watched the uh, documentary that, you know, you guys had such a deep friendship that you get hurt in the Lesnar match and he leaves WrestleMania. Yeah. I, he, I was like, he, he I literally guess, goes to the hospital and takes off and just like, all right, you guys handle the rest of WrestleMania. I'm leaving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, evidently I told him, I, 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 I like I cut a, I, I cut a promo on him and I don't remember doing any of this, but I cut a promo on him. Like, don't you have, you know, don't you have a show or something to run? Why are you here? I don't remember any of it. It's what my wife told me happened. And, um, but yeah. What do yeah, you think? Um, what do you think is the most misunderstood thing about him? I, I think most people think he's uh, like a, this, this, this tyrant and, and you know, he's, uh, he, he really, and you only get to see it, I guess, if you're close to him, but I mean, he's just like for years, he's such a, a giving person he really is just a, he's a really kind giving person and he he knows how to run business obviously but he's just a genuinely caring and giving person like for years he didn't all the charities that we worked with there was no publicity about any of it you know i mean we worked with make a wish foundation for years and you never heard a word about it he just because it wasn't that's not what he was that was not what he was about that was it was from his heart you know, and, you know, it's like tribute to the troops. I mean, every year, whether it be Iraq or Afghanistan, he was on that plane with us. I mean, that's something you just, I don't think people realize what a big heart that he has and, and, uh, and how much he cares about the people around him. So do you, do you think he's one of those guys that he just keeps doing this until he dies? There's never uh, I'm retiring. Like, it's just, this is it. Yeah. He loves it. He loves it. He loves that product and he loves working out. Right. Those are his, and you know, and his grandkids and his family. Yeah. I mean, that's that he just loves it. And he's, you know, he's what, what's the answer? He's like 75. He's 75. Yeah. And he's just like, like the Energizer bunny, man. You know, it's his mom's crazy. 99. His mom is 99 and was still playing tennis at 97. Well, and so, his son, his son is almost 50, jumping off 25 foot cages and right? elbow drops. They, they got some crazy gene there that that uh, the rest of us don't don't have. But yeah, I hope I hope no one's waiting on him to kick so that they can take over because he, he's yeah. gonna be there. He he he'll he'll outlive me. I forgot to ask you, this probably was important because we're in the middle of a pandemic and all the, uh, 
the wrestling industry right now, just trying to do shows and events with no fans. You had probably the most memorable match of WrestleMania, the, the Boneyard match. Right. But, um, wrestling with no fans really made me realize, Oh, turns out fans are really important with wrestling, like entrance music, crowd noise. It's like, Oh shit. You just take for granted. And it's like, wow, this is weird. It is bizarre. I think it worked better for UFC because there were different things. You could hear the corner man. It, it seems like it's still feeling its way with WWE how to do this. How do you think they've handled it so far? I, I think they're making the best out of a really horrible situation. Uh, obviously, you feed, you know, you feed so much off of your of your audience, um, and you use their energy a lot to propel you through you know, your promos and, and matches and, and things like that. And you can still see you know, dur- during the shows that sometimes you just can't, they can't help it. They got to, they, you'll still yeah. see them look to the crowd and it's just, an, it's an empty warehouse. It, it is so bizarre. Like I did want to lead up to, to WrestleMania. I did, uh, I did one segment in the, at the warehouse and um, like, and I was trying to be animated and, and you know, and, and pissed off about something that AJ had said. And I'm storming around the ring and I'm just thinking, I keep, I'm like, I'm trying to draw on all the memories of like sold out crowds. And I'm trying to, on one hand, I'm trying to draw those memories, but then I'm, you know, I'm walking around and it's just like, there's nothing there other than the camera guy. You know, it is so bizarre. And you really, it, it gives you perspective on how much that you do count on your fan base and the people being there. It's just because a lot of times if you're cutting a promo or something on somebody, you want to make eye contact with somebody and you know, it's easier to make it really personal if you can, but with nobody there, it's, it's, it's strange. Well, maybe think that the crowd is actually the single most important wrestling character because <laughs> the wrestlers can trade, but can change, but the, the actual, the noise, the ebb and flow, when the crowd turns on somebody, when they don't like a match. I, yeah. You you gauge so much of your own reaction watching something from what the fans think. Absolutely. And to just remove that is so, it's so surreal to watch. What is it, just out of curiosity, what was the best crowd? We're talking 35 years of wrestling for you. What was the single best crowd? Man, I tell you what. Because uh, you've wrestled everywhere. I mean, even go back to the Astrodome and places like that. Like yeah, arenas um, that aren't even in domes that don't even exist anymore. Yeah. yeah. So the, that crowd in the Astrodome was, was pretty live. Of course, I was, I'm from Houston originally. So, um, you know, that was pretty special. But that crowd uh, in Dallas at Texas Stadium, um, man, that, was, that place was rocking too. Uh, you know, 100,000 people. Oh, WrestleMania? Yeah. Oh, I was there. Yeah, yeah. that was amazing. Yeah. That, I mean, that was just an ocean of people. And, you know, that was the largest crowd that I'd ever worked in front of. Um, I tell you what, in, in any, I tell you what, you know, work, I used to love to work, you know, when the card was sold out at the Garden, the Boston Garden and, the, and Madison Square. You know, those places, when they're full, and the business is is, is really thriving. And those yeah. places are just awesome to work because the fans they come to have a good time. And 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 I, and I talk about it a little bit in the in the doc. Like <laughs> when you go to the gardens, you got to bring it right. Right. 
And if you bring it, they're going to love you. And they're, they're going to show you that they're going to show you that love and that appreciation, man, but you stink it up and you are going to hear it. You know? So it's, it's, you know, and, and, the, and then in Madison square is, is, you know, it was always cool. It was the first, it was the first one that put all the big pictures of the people that had performed there yeah. on the walls, you know, the line, the halls, they were the first one, I think, to do that. And, um, where I dress normally at the garden when I came out right before I'd go to the, uh, you know, area where we used to come out on the side, there was, there's a big picture of, uh, of Elvis. And then right next to Elvis was Ali, which I was a big Elvis fan and a big Ali fan. Right. So those were like two of the last two things that, that I saw uh, Elvis at the garden, Ali at the garden against Frazier. And then boom, it was time to, you know, turn into the undertaker and, and go out. So, I mean, that was just like all those years that I worked there, that was kind of my routine right before I would go out. I would look at those pictures and, you know, go out. So those MSG crowds and some of the stuff's on YouTube now, like the spectrum MSG, Boston garden, Chicago stadium, right. um, which they only WWE wasn't there that often, but all those kind of basketball arenas, with the old setup before you had the suites right. and the fans are just losing their shit. Like you go back and you see the Bruno matches from the early seventies or, you know, even some of Hogan's earlier stuff, but right. the, the backland stuff is where it really gets nuts. Cause you know, he's kind of, he held the title for five years and he barely gets mentioned anymore, but was fighting all of these awesome villains from, late seventies on and the crowd is just losing their minds during it. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. like it's yeah. like life or death. It just, it'll never be that way again. I don't know why it was like that in the late seventies, but, um, it was well, just the different. Business, the business was protected back then, you know, it, and you know, I, I'm kind of the last of the guys that tried to protect, protect the business. Yeah. But now, you know, it, it's, and I get it. I mean, it's just, it is, it's, you know, things progress and, and it's the state of things, but, you know, back then it was just, there was just less, there was less knowledge. Now there's so much, you know, everybody knows everything, you know, everybody knows go, what's going on behind, you know, what, what goes on behind the scenes and the, you know, our fan base, they want to know what's going on in their personal lives. So everybody's on Instagram and Twitter and, you know, there's so much, that you, you just, there's nothing, you know, and back then, you know, half the people still thought it was a shoot, you know, you know, I, I would say it was more than half. Oh yeah, probably. Yeah. Probably. I would say it was like 90%. And, you know, and now we kind of go out of our way to make sure that people know that it's not, you know, it just kind of took a little bit, I think of the mystique and the, and the, and they just the, the feel of it. You know, now everybody, like I said, everybody knows everything and it's hard. Well, I remember, so, I remember Dave Meltzer when he was writing for the national, the sports newspaper, uh -huh. and he was writing about wrestling and it was the first time somebody was writing about wrestling and reading and being like, wait, what the fuck? Wait, what? Wait, the, the, uh, and there was this whole inner game, but it didn't really come out until the mid nineties when the, when the internet starts and then the message boards yeah, and and then you could feel wrestling trying to account for it, where 
you'd have these Monday Night Raws, but the fans knew somebody was going to show up that night because they'd read it on a message board. Right. And they're chanting for the wrestler who's not even introduced yet. And then the announcers have to pretend they have no idea this guy's going to come out. And you just feel it shift. But And then they figured it yeah. out. Yeah. But and, it took a couple know, years. I, I just remember being a fan as a kid. Like, there, well, there was no internet. You know, you, you had to wait till that show came on or if you went to the, you know, if you went to the event live, like I grew up in Houston, used to go to the San Houston Coliseum and, and watch it there. But that was all the content you got. So, you know, that, or, you know, and then if you want to know what was going on around the country, then you had to wait until one of the magazines came out, like, you know, right. Wrestling Illustrated or oh, you yeah. know, to know what's going on in the Carolinas or Florida or, you know. Or Minnesota, I just you know, I, I get it, but I, I wish there was a little bit of that left. You yeah, know, I wish there was a little bit more mystique. But there's this, you know, we try to do things now, and I don't. I, I have this conversation with Vince all the time. I was like, how, how do, how do they find out? Like, it has to. There has to be some kind of internal leak somewhere, because you can't do anything that surprises. I mean, it's almost it's virtually impossible anymore so yeah. it only leads me like who's who lets this stuff out why why is it well accepted? i thought about that during the jordan doc um you know part of what made him so great was there was a real mystique about him we knew him but we didn't really know him you know right. he was in commercials other than that you know he did press conferences but there was still this mystery yeah. all right what's this guy really like but now you think of like lebron who's the best player now we know everything. He's on Instagram. He's producing yeah. different things and he's just present and available. Yeah. And you have a feel. I know his kids taco Tuesday. Right. And that's just kind of what life's like now in 2020. So I, I feel like wrestling representing that and all the reality shows. I mean, they fuck 20, 30 wrestlers have their own uh, reality show at some point at this. So you were kind of the last one. You were the last one who called it. Yeah. And it's funny, right? So, I guess I got a social media account. It's probably been less than two years, right? I finally yeah. just said, you know, I mean, you know, the writing was on the wall. I know I got, you know, I got more matches behind me than I do in front of me. And, you know, people are saying like, dude, you need to get yourself out there because your wrestling career, you know, is, is, is coming to an end. Now it's time to cash in on the brand, you know, the stuff that you didn't do for all these years. You know, I was like, ah, you know, and, you know, people are like, no, really, you need to do this and, and, you know, be prepared for post, you know, post WWE. So finally, I, you know, I got a social media, right? I got, I opened an Instagram account and, uh, so I don't know, I posted something. I don't know. I think I posted something about, uh, this is a couple of years ago. I posted something about the university of the Longhorns beating, uh, Georgia in the sugar bowl. Right. Yeah. So the first kind of one of the really like one of the first things that I did that was out of character. So I get, you know, so I'm scrolling through, looking at comments and stuff like that. And like, well, there goes my childhood. <laughs> my childhood is ruined. The undertaker is now on social he's, media. He's a human being. Well, I had no idea. I had no, you, yeah. That's, it's like, I'm looking at it like, you gotta be shitting me. You gotta be kidding me at this point. Like, you know, but people were like genuinely pissed that, you know, that I, I broke character. Finally, after, you know, after 30 years. <laughs> Where like, do they find out you have a wife and kids? 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, people hate her. People hate Michelle because she's married to me. Really? Oh my God. Are you kidding me? I look, my family. Like you she's ruined your character because you have a wife? And children? Yeah. People don't they they didn't they didn't want to see that. All they wanted was what I give them. Yeah. You know, I mean they wanted more. Obviously, they wanted more, but I mean, like they get they're real it's uh, my fan base has been very loyal, especially when you consider how long that I've been here. Like my fan base has stayed with me. And then obviously they've had children now. And it's like, you know, so I have, but they're very, uh, and I, and I'm very appreciative, but they, they're very possessive and protective of, of, you know, of the undertaker. And, uh, it, it's funny well, some of the stuff that you get. I have to tell you one, one story before we go. So it's like 1998, 1998, 1999. I'm in Las Vegas gambling at Treasure Island. Uh huh. Go on. A, <laughs> it's one of those. I'm, I'm broke at that point. Go on this run. And it's just one of those two hour blackjack runs where it's like just you're getting every card. We're up. We're high fiving, ordering shots, whole thing. It's like great, great Vegas night, ultimate Vegas night. Go to the bathroom. And I'm in there and you walk in. <laughs> That's and, why I had that look on my face. I was yeah, like, yeah. Vegas? I, oh. I was going to bring her out. And you're like two urinals down from me. And I, I'm hammered. It's like two in the morning. And you're there and you're going to the bathroom. And there's just silence. And then I said something like, I'm up $500 and I'm taking a piss next to the undertaker. What a night. And there's just three seconds of silence. And I'm like, oh my God, he's going to kill me. And then you're like, mm, sounds like it. And you walk away. And I'm thinking all these years later, how many interactions, dumb interactions with stupid idiots like me in 1997 have you had over the last 30 years where you just kind of have to move on? Yeah, there's been a, there's been a few. I mean, uh, <laughs> you got me really nervous when you start talking about Las Vegas. Uh, <laughs> I think the statute of limitations has run out almost. Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. I'm good. I'm good now. Um, <laughs> uh, there, yeah, there's, there's, there's been a lot of, a lot of weird things and people that'll, you know, not so nobody tries weird, to fuck with you. Do they, do the people like try to challenge you? No, no, I, I've been very fortunate that way. Like, you know, I'm kind of, and until I get a read on somebody, I'm, uh, like people I don't know, I'm a little, I'm a little reserved and, and, and not, not kind of standoffish in a little bit until I kind of get a feel on, on yeah. where people are at. at. At four in the morning in Treasure Island's toilet, I'm, you know, and I'm probably about <laughs> 10 sheets to the wind myself. Yeah. So. I don't think you were sober either. Yeah. Yeah. I was, if, I was probably swaying, <laughs> but, uh, but not, you know, I've always just kind of carried myself, not, not like, you know, you know, walk in, like, don't fuck with me kind of thing, but just carry myself in a way like, yeah, it probably wouldn't be, you know, advantageous for you to fuck with me too much. And, and you always keep moving, right? That's the move yeah, when you're super famous. Yeah. You never stop. You just yeah, keep that's the, going that's forward. The, that's the worst is, is if you stop and then, you know. Yeah. Well, I have good news for you. What's that? I'm, I'm hiring you for a ringer podcast. We'll talk. We'll talk about it later. I think you could do this. I think you can have your own podcast. You just have guests. Just shoot the shit with people. Oh, you think? It's easy. Yeah. You can do this. I'm telling you. Oh, I might have to. This could be, your, be, this could be a... your next thing. 
It could be. I, I may be looking for a new job soon. Think how many connections you have. You could just call in all the people who owe you something over the years. You could have every one of those people on as a guest. And that's 30 shows. You're good. Mm, I'm, I'm going to put that to the th- think tank, man. Yeah, put it on. I, I think you could have a podcast. Like look, Stone Cold has reinvented himself a little bit. He's got a really good podcast. A lot of good yeah. people gone. But you, I think you could do it. I I, I think, uh, I don't know. I just feel, I feel like you could do it. So think about it. Well, I will put think that, about it. Put it on there. You know, you, people laugh at me because I've had up until recently, like I hated talking. I hate talking in front of people like yeah. as myself. Now I can talk as undertaker. I can talk in front of a hundred thousand people and not blink an eye, but to be myself in, in a large group terrifies me. And I know I've got a, I've got a little bit of a tick where I say, you know, a lot. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but. No, people, I didn't notice any tips. Well, I, I, it's really, I'm trying to really break the habit of not saying it, but it's like, I'll start to start talking about a story or something like that. And and like, I'll be thinking about what I'm going to say. And then I'll say, hey, you know, anyway, people pick up on it. They kind of, they kind of bury well, me. Maybe, it, like, maybe your CTE. podcast can just be just stories about things you did in Vegas that the statute of limitations have expired. You know, some people, those never expire. <laughs> are you a blackjack guy? What are you like poker? Yeah. Yeah. Blackjack? I like blackjack. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely. you'd have to go to like the, pri- the, the tables where the, you get your own little area. Nah, man. I just usually, I just get out there amongst them. You know, people are unbelievable. How did I not know this? Yeah. I, oh, I don't, I, I mean, I've been out to Vegas. It's been a while. It's been a couple of years since I've been out there, but. You know, I, but I don't start till really late. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's probably so, why. Yeah. You keep it under the radar. Well, this was awesome. Are. You could check well, out thanks. the last ride on uh WWE network. There's been two episodes so far. I thought it was excellent. I really, really did. You. I really genuinely enjoyed it. It was great to talk to you. I'm glad we uh, finally did this. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you having me on and I'll, uh, I'll consider doing my own. Yeah. We got to talk. All right. Thank you. <laughs> See you, Bill. All right, before we go, as promised, here is Eddie Vedder talking to the crowd in Chicago in 2006 and then launching into present tense. A song that uh, the true Pearl Jam fans, though, has has always been one of the underrated Pearl Jam songs, but now got its just due on this famous sports documentary. Anyway, here that is. Wrapping it up, we will see you on Thursday. How's the sound there in the United Center tonight? We were worried that all these, uh, all these flags might be dampening the sound a bit and making it kind of quiet. Maybe we should take a couple of them down. I, I think we should start with taking the... Uh, maybe we should take that Jordan flag down right there. Let's start with that one. Just let's take that flag down and... and uh, actually, take it down. You can, you can put it in my suitcase so I can take it home. That would be great. Actually, there's a, uh, I, I think you can bring up uh, Michael Jordan and, and uh, the Chicago team, and, and since we're in this room tonight and in their house. It was, a, it was an amazing time in, in, in life, especially if you grew up in Chicago, to see that. Uh. And so, uh, even though music and uh, 
athleticism. It doesn't really seem like they cross over, but this song in particular seems like it does. And I think about those guys. This song's called Present Tense. Somehow I see it's become 